Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Emily Dufton, and today I'm talking to Sean Howe, author of the new book, Agents of Chaos, Thomas King Forsad, High Times, and the Paranoid End of the 1970s, which was just released by Hachette Books. Sean's writing has been featured pretty much everywhere, from the New York Times to Rolling Stone, and Agents of Chaos is his second book. His first, the award-winning Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, came out in 2012. So welcome to New Books Network, Sean. Thanks, Emily. I am really excited to talk to you kind of on the record today, because maybe listeners should know that you and I have actually been communicating for years since for a while, it seemed like we were two of the only people in the world interested in the shadowy figure of Tom Forsad. I wrote about him a bit in my book, Grassroots, but Agents of Chaos really goes into detail, outlining almost every aspect of this man's life and career. So to begin with, can you tell us who Thomas King Forsad was and how you got interested in him? Sure, yeah. Um, uh, the the way that I got interested in him was was simply, you know, coming across his name. Um, and I think it was it was paired in maybe some Google searches for um like CIA and marijuana smuggling. <laughs> I was trying to find out something about someone else. And this guy, Tom Fursad, came up. Um, the reason that CIA came up is because he was dogged his entire life with, you know, accusations that that he was a government agent. Um, but when I started reading more about him, I realized that he was kind of, you know, a, he had a part in all these different subcultures of the 1960s and 1970s and he was a radical uh activist and he was a publisher and he was uh sort of involved in the burgeoning punk rock movement um as well as being a you know drug smuggler and uh the founder of high times magazine um and so i thought who's this zelig character that somehow i've never heard of and the more that i read about him um, just the the wilder his his story seemed to be. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I guess I got, I've got pulled in to his story even more than I intended. And, uh, that was about, uh, like nine years ago. <laughs> and nine years later, the book exists. That's amazing. Now, uh, his name was not Thomas King Forsad. Who, who, what was his real name? Who was this person who became Tom Forsad? Yeah, he was, um, he was born Gary Goodson. Um, he grew up, uh, uh, I guess mainly in Arizona, although he was, uh, his, his father was a military contractor. And so he moved around internationally as a child. Um, and, you know, he didn't really exhibit these <laughs> these kind of countercultural um, leanings until after college. So the first, um, you know, twenty some years of his life, um, he was he was kind of a um, you know not completely remarkable um, you know young young man in the nineteen sixties. Um, you know, he was very much like a, a Cold War. A kid who was into cowboys and astronauts and uh james bond books and uh then at some point and it you know it took me a while to figure out um at some point he emerged as this um you know mysterious uh fun <laughs> sorry uh uh fu manchu wearing uh druggy guy um <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about his personal style? Yeah. Um, uh, people who, who met him in 1969 is, is kind of when he started to gain some notoriety, um, you know, described him as, as, you know, wearing all black, um, sometimes in a, you know, like a, a suit um, with a black hat, um, often uh, sunglasses, you know, round lenses like john lennon made famous um and he wouldn't be photographed and uh he wouldn't talk much about his uh his background um but he would he would give interviews and he would talk about this entity called the uh underground press syndicate which he promised was going to you know take over the nation um and and that is something that had existed before he came around um UPS was this consortium of underground newspapers all across the country. And uh, the people who had founded the syndicate, uh, these various editors, didn't really uh, find the time to, to manage um, UPS uh, administration. So he wrote to them and said, look, I'm in Arizona. I'm very capable of, you know, I have all these skills and I will do this work for you. So um, Phoenix became the base of operations for, um, you know, kind of the the trade organization uh, that worked with all of the underground papers in the United States. I think that's such an interesting kind of side note to that, because I think when we think about the counterculture, we think about places like San Francisco, we think about places like New York, but Tom Frasad is coming out of Phoenix, Arizona, and and he has family connections or, or life connections to Utah, to like the home of Mormonism. He seems like a really unique figure in the history of American counterculture because he's not from the coasts, he's not from the cities we associate it with. 
do you think that his past in those places and his experience there uh, shaped him at all? Well, I think there was um, there was a kind of nonviolent um, subculture, I guess, uh, uh, a um, a bunch of people who were who were kind of um, adherents of Amon Hennessy in Utah, um, and he got pulled a little bit into um, this, you know, kind of uh, Christian. Um, I, I guess just this kind of like radical nonviolent um, group in Utah. Uh, but he was still kind of on the outside of that. It's just something that, you know, his, his girlfriend was, was into, but it was exposure to um, a kind of activism. Um, and in Phoenix, you know, there, there was, there was a little bit of a, a counterculture, you know, there were, there were some um, communes, but, um, what really brought him in, I think, was the idea that this was um, this was a trend, <laughs> and that this was something that was popular. And uh, I think he saw the business opportunity in getting involved in it. And I think he he, you know, as an outsider, he thought that this would be just a good thing to attach himself to. Um, his politics. I think did change pretty soon after he started working with UPS. Um, but uh, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a natural, uh, you know, gravitation toward uh, leftist politics. It's really interesting. So it's almost as though he kind of has this entre entrepreneurial spirit uh, behind the counterculture. Uh, and like you said, he was a publisher, he was uh, organizing the UPS, he was, uh, I think he had a, a business degree uh, <laughs> from the University of Utah. Um, can you talk a little bit about what he offered to the UPS and, and how he brought that sensibility to the counterculture? Yeah, it was exactly his business background. Um, and he had he had done a lot of, you know, his his work background in Arizona was was pretty much tied to temp work. Um, you know, so he was he was qualified in that he knew you know the theories of of business and and how um how how to run a business in in theory, but uh he kind of bluffed his way into getting you know the, the work with ups um, he wrote a letter saying that you know me and my associates have been you know doing these kind of things for this many years and you know he he had really no associates <laughs> you know he had <laughs> he had a girlfriend who ended up doing some of the work um but uh he sort of made himself out to be just this very confident um i guess you know it was a 19 um 1960s version of fake it till you make it, I guess. Um, but but he delivered once he started working with UPS. He had all these ideas about how the um, how, you know how, how the advertising could be more profitable for them, and um, how they could just kind of run um, more efficiently. Um, uh, they you know they sent out all these uh, packets to the different member papers about. You know, this is how, you know, you should look for a printer. This is how, uh, you know, you should you should distribute your paper. Um, you know, it, it was 
actually a very uh, helpful role that he played. Um, and the UPS papers started to become, you know, more profitable. They had a national advertising account, so they would get um, a lot of record company ads that would that would help fund them. Uh, so, so although he he may have not been completely honest about his um, you know his resume, he turned out to be very qualified in that role. And as he later said, when you know, there was some backlash against him as a, you know, a businessman in the the world of the counterculture, you know, somebody needs to, <laughs> you know, to keep the books, somebody needs to be on top of, of the money. Right. So it seems like he's finally bringing a sense of form and function to what was otherwise a pretty scattered and disorganized field, that of, of underground countercultural publishing. But that, of course, is not the only place where his entrepreneurial spirit lied, uh, or at least where, where it existed, uh, not necessarily lied, uh, but I guess you could read that in both definitions of that word. <laughs> he also uh, was quite prominent in um, the world of cannabis smuggling. Um, can you talk a little bit about his role as a smuggler? Yeah, so I, I unfortunately was only able to, um, in terms of his earliest involvement in the drug trade, I was only able to kind of puncture some myths. Um, and, you know, when you have a kind of this big, larger than life character, you don't, you, you're not always excited when you, <laughs> when you fact check and, and realize that, um, you know, maybe, maybe some of the more colorful stuff is, uh, is not true, but thankfully there was, <laughs> there was enough, uh, colorful stuff about Tom Fursad otherwise. Um, <laughs> you know, there there were there were people who said, you know, he had joined the Air Force and that's how he learned, you know, to fly a plane and was moving a lot of weight between Mexico and the southern United States. Um I spoke to someone in his um uh his he, he was a part of the Air Guard in in Phoenix. Uh he was um in the reserves. And I spoke to someone in his unit who said, well, he actually didn't fly what he was part of this. He just was like pushing papers. Um, he was, he was just doing administrative work, um, on weekends. Um, so whether or not he was flying planes, um, he, he didn't learn it from the air guard. Um, and I, I kind of think that the, drug smuggling came only a couple of years into working with UPS. Um, and when he was uh, traveling, they had a 1946 school bus that they, he and the other UPS employees and volunteers um, moved around and sort of spread the word of, of UPS and met with different papers. Um, you know, that provided a great, uh, opportunity to distribute marijuana as well. Um, but I think, you know, it was more on the, um, you know, I would say he was a, a big time dealer in those years more than a smuggler. Um, after he moved to New York, or I should say by the time he moved to New York, he was involved with some very big, uh, smugglers. Um, one of whom was a guy named Ken Bernstein. Um, and that, became a big kind of rabbit hole for my research. Um, Ken Bernstein is one of those people who's like, um, you know, uh, 
involved with the FBI and the CIA and running arms to different countries. And so uh, I don't know to what degree Horsad was involved in those things, but uh, he was partnered up with this guy, Ken Bernstein. Um, and that I I only had documentation of, no one told me about it until I, I mentioned that documentation to um, the Miami publisher of a, an underground newspaper, and he gave me a lot more background. He, he, he Everything sort of fell into place when I told him that they had worked together. Um, so that's a, that's kind of a, a, a tangent in the book, but that is, the, that's the earliest, you know, known, um, heavyweight <laughs> that he was moving. Um, and the, that side of his life, I think picked up even more after high times was published. Right. So 1974, Forsad seems to combine his two loves, right? Underground publishing and cannabis into High Times. Can you tell us a little bit about what High Times was and and is, it continues to be published, uh, and what it meant uh, in that moment and what Forsad was trying to do with it? Yeah, well, the, the reason that High Times came about um, was Forsad had been involved with the Yippies, um, this very prankster-minded um, counterculture, um, kind of a merging of counterculture and leftist politics group. Um, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, of course, are the, the most famous members of the Yippies. Um, and then he had started a, a kind of like fractured spinoff of the Yippies called the Zippies, which were going to be, you know, more radical in every sense than you know, what they termed the sellout yippies um, that, you know, uh, as as with all um, kind of <laughs> revolutionary groups that spin into different factions, um, it gets it gets very confusing. But, um, you know, the zippies were a big presence at the 1972 um, Republican and Democratic National uh, Conventions doing a lot of protests. Um, and after the um 1972 uh political season ended um for a number of reasons the uh the activist the the national politics activist um culture kind of faded away you know the the end of the vietnam war happened um the economy started to uh get a little stalled out um and high times was for Saad's way of um, this is this is this is how I'm going to kind of get people involved in something that's oppositional. Um, people are going to um, attach themselves to uh, drugs because it's a taboo thing, and um, it, I can sensationalize this, but I can also get people, um, you know, to to sort of embrace this um, this cause that is against conservative forces in the United States. Um, and I think I can also make a lot of money with it. So um, the underground newspapers had, you know, they'd lost their record company ads, thanks in part to the FBI um, interfering and in getting the record companies to, to stop funding the underground papers. So High Times was sort of it's a rebirth of that ethos, uh, um, but published in glossy form and featuring as as 
many people would know, um, centerfold uh, <laughs> portraits of uh, different marijuana plants. Um, so carrying forth this, um, you know, this underground spirit, um, High Times was also supposed to just let people know about what marijuana could do for you, um, what marijuana smelled like, what it looked like. Um, you know, it wasn't something other than, um, you know, the crime blotter of the daily newspaper, you know, marijuana wasn't something that you could really read about, um, uh, with, with much ease in 1974. Uh, there were a few, you know, how to grow publications, a few, a few books, um, but there was nothing that was reporting on, you know, what was going on in the drug culture. Right, right. It's an it's an incredible magazine. And so I looked at every issue, which were leather bound and collected at the Library of Congress. That's how meaningful <laughs> High Times has become to American culture that the Library of Congress has every issue. And I was paging through them. I mean, it's it's a really fascinating magazine because it's a lot of it is some really great reporting. There's brilliant writing in there. You have Dean Latimer, you have Hunter Thompson, you have all these people writing. You also have uh, price reports from across the country. So you can compare and contrast. Um, oh, you know, it's not too bad in Oregon, but it's really expensive right now in New York or whatever. Uh, but it's, but he also, uh, there's a scene in your book that I loved where he holds up a copy of the magazine and I think he calls it a license to print money. <laughs> right. Right. He knew immediately once he, you know, saw the the finished copy that, you know, he was, he was kind of filling a void. Um, and, and that, he, I mean, he also knew that he had a distribution network. Um, they couldn't, they couldn't get newsstands to carry it. Um, but what he could do was exploit the distribution networks of the underground press. And in addition to that, the distribution networks of marijuana dealers. So um, with his sales of, say, like a bale of marijuana to um, a, a, another dealer, he would include copies of High Times. And then those dealers would pass along copies of the magazine to their, you know, retail customers, I guess. <laughs> um, and so pretty much, um, you know, people in certain regions who were buying marijuana in bulk were all seeing this magazine and and you know they could decide to carry this in their head shops or you know they would pass it around while they were you know i guess listening to pink floyd records <laughs> and uh you know it, it was really an overnight sensation and they went through um i think three printings of the first issue immediately and started to get national press um but Tom Persaud left his name out of the magazine completely. So mm. um, that's one of the reasons that maybe people have never heard of him. Um, he started this um, magazine that eventually started to rival Rolling Stone in circulation numbers, but uh, nobody knew who ran it. Mm. So it seems like Persaud kind of came of political age in the 1960s. He comes to prominence in the 1970s. He really has his finger on the pulse of the American counterculture, but he also starts to come under attack in the 1970s. Your subtitle includes that tantalizing phrase, the paranoid end of the 1970s. Uh, what happens to Farsad during this period? Yeah, so the, the 1970s, um, 
you know, Farsad was, uh, went through a, a bunch of different, uh, I guess, incarnations in the 1970s. Um, you know, he moved to New York in 69, um, got involved with the Yippies and then started the Zippies. Um, and then, of course, uh, High Times was in 74. Um, by the mid 70s, um, he was doing a lot of a lot of um, drug dealing and flying around the country. And um, even the employees of the magazine did not know what that part of his life was. Um, he had he had friends that were in the um, journalistic community who did not know his friends in the political community who did not know his friends um, in the illegal activities. Um, he compartmentalized his life um, very completely. I, you know, I spoke to um, Gabrielle Shang, who was his wife um, you know, for the last year of his life. And, you know, she would not be able to tell me the names of some of his closest friends. Um, you know, she might be traveling with him and, and going to um, Miami and she would sort of stay at the pool while Forsad went off and did his his drug work. Um, so sometimes those worlds collided and, you know, were very scary moments for the maybe the people who worked in the magazine would would see like a glimpse of, you know, um, uh, machine guns or um you know uh some 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 heavier crimes that that i talk about in the book um but uh trying to uh figure out um the trying to put that puzzle together was of, of course very difficult because um people only saw one side of him at a time right right can you talk a little bit about Forsad's death? What happened to him? Yeah, so another big part of Tom Forsad or Gary Goodson um, is that, you know, he had bipolar disorder. And so, um, you know, that really sort of matches up in a way with um, his, his uh, like almost superhuman motivations at times, um, his his ability to um to keep you know a few different identities going at once um but it also meant that he had these tremendous lows uh where he wouldn't get out of bed for weeks at a time um and that was something that he often suffered seasonally and you know i think there are a number of winters that um people didn't see him um, so in 1978, on top of all of that, um, he had suffered the, the death of one of his closest friends, um, a guy named Jack Combs, who was kind of his, his Lieutenant in, in his, um, some of his drug adventures. Um, Jack Combs died in a plane crash and Forsad was partially responsible, um, for the crash. He was, um, kind of. Uh, trying to trying to help him uh, guide the he was trying to guide the plane, you know, from the ground, and uh, and the plane crashed. Um, so, so Forsad was was not only 
dealing with like a, a clinical depression. Um, he had suffered the loss of his his best friend. And um, there were a number of things in 1978 outside of Forsad that were, um, I guess, uh, you know, troubling for, for someone who was a drug activist, um, as, as you know, and you've written about, um, uh, you know, Carter's drug czar uh, was involved in a cocaine scandal and um, the, the legalization movement really came to a, a screeching halt um, in the middle of 1978. And um, that, of course, you know, had a huge effect on not just High Times, but Borsad's other businesses. Um, uh, so uh, all of these things really kind of kind of came to a head um, in the fall of 1978. And um, and Forsad was also <laughs> doing a lot of quaaludes, which, I, you know, probably not the best thing to self-medicate for depression. Um, and in, in November of 1978, uh, he shot himself. Um, his wife was in the next room and, uh, uh, you know, she of course came in and, and found his body. Um, and because there were all of these different factions in his life, um, each of those factions then came together with their own theories about, you know, what happened and there was a lot of finger pointing and there were a lot of conspiracy theories um i'm pretty confident that he simply um killed himself and um you know despite you know uh people's theories about uh assassins coming in through the window um uh it 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 seems it seems very logical that um uh he he was he was in a, a a terrible state and that uh he he might have done this mm. it's such a tragic ending to such a fascinating but also a really complicated life. I mean, Tom Forsad is not a simple person uh, to write a biography of, uh, not only because he fabricated personal details, but but because, as you said, he compartmentalized his identity. He had so many different incarnations. He did not leave uh, a very strong personal archive in the past. So how how do you write a biography of someone like this? Was it difficult to parse out what was true or false, and and how did you find your materials? Yeah, it it um, it's a challenge. <laughs> I think, um, I think I might have um, you know, might have walked away from it had I known how challenging at the beginning it was going to be. Um, I had the benefit of um going through a lot of materials that had been uh, saved by um, Mo McFadden, his secretary at high times. Um, when, when he died, she, um, you know, gathered a bunch of his personal items. Those ended up with um, Tom Forsad's sister who very generously allowed me to, um, you know, spend a few days going through some, uh, you know, containers of, of papers. Um, unfortunately, those pretty much ended, you know, by the by the time for uh Forsad had started high times. So these were papers that kind of went up to 1972. Um, and that gave me a really good insight into his early life. Um, you know, there were, you know, 
mementos from his childhood, for instance. Um, and, and, and there were, you know, there were a lot of, um, underground press syndicate, um, papers that helped me at least put things in chronological order. Um, in terms of, you know, the later years that really had to be done through interviews for the most part. Um, and, uh, I was, you know, very grateful that I found, you know, people who were willing to, to open up to me about, um, you know, especially to, to open up about the, the drug trade, um, and how, you know, how Forsad worked within that world. Um, um, but you know, the people who worked at high times were very helpful. Um, you know, as I, as I said, um, you know, the, the people who, who worked at, at high times might not have known any of his, you know, continued political activities. Um, so it was, it was almost like reporting on three different people. <laughs> yeah. Your, your, your first book about the history of Marvel, Marvel, excuse me, featured over what, 150 interviews. And it seems like you did at least as many for Agents of Chaos. Um, you have quotes from everybody. It seems like you hunted down everyone but his like first grade teacher. It's incredible. Uh, were people excited to talk to you about Tom Forsad? Some of them were were extremely psyched to, to hear from me. Um, they thought he was the most important, you know, person that they'd ever met. Someone who changed their their life. Um, um, you know, someone who had. In a few cases, you know, they felt like he had given them the confidence to do more with their lives. Um, and then some people were less happy. Um, I had a few people just hang up on me, a wow. few people uh, sort of lecture me about why I shouldn't write the book. Um, you know, there was sort of like a or omerta kind of concept of, um, you know, they just didn't want any of the story to be told ever. Um, one one person I contacted um, informed me that someone else had tried to do a book years ago, and he had, and and he had threatened to cut their balls off. Um, so, uh, you know, but as it turned out, you know, uh, I was able after several years, I eventually got that person not only to not cut my balls off, but to give me a lot of, of really useful information. Two, two successes. Look at and that. Two successes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so yeah, just, just like people had, you know, varied experiences with him in their lives. Um, you know, they, they, I had, I had very varied responses to my, um, reaching out to them. And then there were, of course, you know, there are several people who still insist, and I can't disprove this, you know, that Forsad was a government agent. Um, you know, that I said that that dogged him throughout his life. It continues to um, be something that, that people believe, and I don't discount that possibility. Um, um, you know, I, I had thought that I would... Be able to find a lot more um, um, documentation of his his um, his drug dealings with the DEA, um, and yet I could not access DEA papers um, on him. Um, you know that doesn't that doesn't 
prove anything one way or the other. Um, but, but it was, uh, it was surprising to me. Um, I know that he was watched by the secret service. Um, I could not get any secret service records. Um, although I am told that, um, I, I did actually recently uh, an appeal, um, with the national archives. Um, I might get some drug records in like, uh, another 18 months from now. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see if anything comes of that. I mean, that's such an interesting idea to me. And I feel like that's where your title, Agents of Chaos, is so perfect and so apt because that it seems to me like exactly what Forsyth was, right? He was an agent of chaos causing disruption and commotion. And the book is filled with all these allegations, right? The right thought that Forsad was out to destroy America and Forsad claimed to be hiding from the feds, while the left thought Forsad was being paid by the Republican National Committee to disrupt the counterculture, which he did repeatedly, you know, turning on friends and allies alike. And yet all these allegations do is build up his mystique. So, I mean, you are the person who has succeeded where others have failed. You've written the biography. Can you tell us who was right? If Fursad was an agent of chaos, which agency did he represent? Yeah, I can't. <laughs> I can't. I can't answer that question. And I think that's one of the reasons that I spent so long on this book is I thought that I would, I thought that I would figure it out. Um, and, you know, I I can say that I feel like you know there's maybe an eighty percent chance that he was not involved with the the government in any way. Um, but, uh, you know, that's just a number I'm, I'm pulling out. Um, I, I think it's, you know, completely plausible that he might have, um, agreed to work with the government thinking he could put one over on them, thinking he could, you know, be a, a bit of a triple agent. Um, he had that, um, I think level of confidence in the way that he, um, manipulated people um um i do think that his his views on um legalization were sincere um i do think that you know a lot of his um leftist uh ideals were true um but you know it is also like worth noting like he when he was in college um i talked to a um, a, a friend who was like, yeah, he was really into Ayn Rand and James Bond. He was like, he was like a hardcore libertarian. Um, and that's not really what, I mean, although there's certainly a, a, you know, libertarian crossover in, uh, in, in terms of drug legalization, um, that's not the, um, ideological identity that he really put forth at any time. Um, he was, he was very much, um, a leftist as he presented himself. Um, so whether, whether or not, um, he, you know, he did get involved in any, um, intelligence activities, um, and certainly a lot of people around him at various times did, um, you know, there are a lot of, um, informants that I write about in the book, um, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, that he, he wasn't 
um, acting as a force against um, the left or the or the counterculture. But who knows? <laughs> well, so you've spent almost a decade gathering everything you can possibly find about someone who who essentially wanted to keep their past hidden and you've done a really admirable job of it the book is fun it's fun to read you have all this great information in it it's a spiraling and oftentimes sort of overwhelming view of this very contradictory and complicated period that the Tom Forsad kind of seems right in the middle of the of the of the maelstrom uh, you know he's there so why do you think Prasad matters and and what do you want your readers to gain from your biography of him you know it's it's funny i i realized you know as i was pretty far into the into the writing of the book even um you know what what i think i got out of it was kind of related to the last question you asked me about you know who was he really um and I think that there's so much certainty that people, you know, people that I write about have have so much certainty about their um, politics and about other people's politics. Um, and I think um, the polarization that comes from that certainty um, it, it can can often be sort of self defeating. Um, I think. You know, the I spend a lot of time writing about the yippies versus the zippies. And um, you know, that's really um I, I I feel like that is very resonant with um you know, some of the uh the battles between uh different factions of the left today. Uh you know, there's this uh you know kind of more radical than thou um pose um and uh you know it's i i certainly don't think it's you know their fault that nixon beat mcgovern in 1972 um but uh it it really uh i i think it's just like this self-immolation that that happened with the anti-war movement um at large, um, you know, in the early seventies, um, not just the yippies and the zippies, but, but all the other, um, groups that splintered. Um, so, um, I think that, although that's not, you know, that's, that's a, a, a small part of the book in a way. Um, but I think what continues in the book is the, the paranoia that um that continues in terms of no one no one trusting one another um and i think that that is a direct result of um uh, uh of all the the factionalism that 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 went on early in the 70s i think the the you know the paranoia is a is the fallout of um uh, what was wrought in the early the early 1970s um you know i think cointelpro and um uh and of course we, i didn't talk about you know the cia had its own similar program that was called chaos <laughs> um you know th those uh those programs you know they resulted in um 
you know, some arrests and in, in fact, a few a few deaths. But I think that the major um, impact of, you know, these these government spying programs was that no one really trusted anyone else. Um, and, uh, and, and that became, um, uh, th that feeling just, just multiplied as the decade went on. Mm. Yeah. And Prasad kind of seems to embody it almost. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, in a, in a sense, um, you know, I, I, I guess I'm also, you know, writing about, you know, 1975 is, you know, sort of referred to as the year of intelligence and um you know post watergate there were all these revelations about um you know what what the united states government had been up to for the last you know 20 years um and you know Fursaw's involvement in the drug trade brings him you know closer and closer to um actual intelligence <laughs> intelligence agents you know whether or not he was um working with them or against them who can say hmm. uh but uh you know i think i think writing a book like this which involves so much intrigue i think it's hard to not hear you know for for someone writing and researching it's not hard to get pulled into there's like the siren call of like the jfk assassination and watergate <laughs> and um, even as I'm talking about it, I'm, I'm, I hear myself sounding more and more conspiratorial. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and so I, I, I think, you know, anything involving, um, illicit activities in the 1970s, um, it's, it's always, it's always bringing you really close to, um, uh, to, to those kind of big um uh you know unified unified conspiracy theories that right. <laughs> that you know are are kind of uh the, the shadow histories of of the u.s in, right, in right. the cold year wars the heart of darkness of american politics totally well so i mean and i sound like there... i sound like kurtz <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> like i've gone too far up the river <laughs> I mean, nine years after researching this, I feel like maybe <laughs> that's what it feels like. I feel like that when I'm writing a book as well. Uh, what has the response to Agents of Chaos been like? Uh, you talked to all these people. Have they read it? Uh, do they like the way they're portrayed? Do they like the way Tom Frassad is portrayed? Yeah, I, I've actually I've heard really, um, really great responses. Um, I'm really thrilled that you know a lot of people have said they, they've just been um very surprised at how i captured the time and said that it you know has felt like reading it feels like they're back in that time which i was very proud proud to hear um um because you know, I, for better or worse, I really did immerse myself in in that um, while I was working on it. Um, I think you know, naturally, um, some people are going to think they, you know, they themselves maybe should be a bitter a bigger part of the story. Um, 
Um, but the, for the most part, I've, I've, I've really just heard like, wow, you've, you've made me understand this person that I knew, um, more than I ever had. Um, which, which is, um, really marvelous to hear actually. Um, you know, a biographer's think, dream come true, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, any, anytime, um, yeah, if you write about something and a person who was part of it says that they've given you some kind of, or that you've given them some kind of closure, um, that's, that's really remarkable. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful to, to, to hear from, from those people. Um, yeah, no one, no one has, uh, really taken me to task for anything i'm, I'm happy to say <laughs> well i don't want to take you for to task for it either because as a drug historian i think this is a really important contribution to the field not only for marijuana studies but for understanding the larger context in which Tom Forsad exists in the roles that he played. I think he has long deserved a biography and you've really put the blood, sweat and tears in to write the book that he deserves. So thank you. I want to thank you for creating it. Oh, thank you so much. But hopefully you're not done writing yet. So I will ask you New Books Network's traditional last question, which is what you're working on now and what we can expect to talk about with you next. I would hate to be the person who says I can't really talk about right now <laughs> uh, um nothing, nothing is is totally is totally firm um um but i will say uh outside of anything that i'm um uh writing a book on I, i've 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 still been like um swept into you know there might be something that i spent two pages on in this book and there are all these things that I want to continue like branching off and learning more about. So, um, um, as much as I would like to pull myself out of the seventies, it's, 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 uh, it's pulling me back in a little bit. A decade is like the mob. It just, you can't get out. It just keeps bringing you back in. <laughs> right. Well, thanks again, Sean. His new book is called Agents of Chaos, Thomas King Persaud, High Times and the Paranoid End of the 1970s. And I highly recommend you all pick it up. <laughs>